That's great. <laughs> so uh, let me tell you my favorite Pastor Chuck story. Just kidding. I think it's great they put that little clock on the back to make sure that I don't go over. I just wish I'd brought my glasses so that I could see it. <laughs> we're going to get through this okay. I think, I think we're going to do fine. When I was in seminary, I had a professor, my, one of my systematic theology classes, and guy had written all kinds of books, and he was one of the one of the tops in this field. I was just so grateful for it. I went to the seminary to be exposed to that kind of, of teaching. And uh, I sat in class the first day, sat down, and he said, okay, let's pray. And, you know, not all classes begin like that. And, and just quickly it ran through my mind. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. I got this Puritan wannabe, and he's going to be praying for us, and I'm just going to gain all kinds of insight from this amazing prayer that he's going to pray. And he said, Lord, open your word to us and us to your word. And that was it. He prayed that every class. And I gained so much from just having that. And that I've used that over and over in my life. When I teach a lesson, when I, when I preach, when I just sit down for my own personal Bible study. It's just, there's just power in some of these little simple prayers sometimes. And so that's the prayer I'm going to pray for us right now. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us and us to your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. This is going to be a kind of connect the dots sermon. Uh, that we get to do that on these special Sundays. Throughout, throughout the year, you're teaching different books of the Bible, different kinds of topics, we kind of just tend to, you know, sit on one particular topic and never get how it weaves. Some of you remember walk through the Bible where it just kind of weaved the whole story of the Old Testament and then the New Testament all together so you can get it in perspective and see. And I want to do that a little bit today, uh, just connect some of these dots. And so we're going to begin by thinking about yearbook theology. That's why I'm calling this zoom in and zoom out. Yearbook theology, we're going to zoom in real quick here. Yearbook theology, what happens when you get your yearbook? You pick it up, and what do you do? Where am I? <laughs> you start looking for you. And that, we all do that. It's how we're wired. So it's what we think. And that sometimes happens uh, with our Bible study and even some of our teaching. Uh, Jesus left the Father's glory for me. Jesus suffered and died for me. He's gone back to heaven to build a mansion for me. And he's up there interceding for me and he's going to come back again for me. A.W. Tozer, Steve Timmons, even Pastor Jeremy included this in one of his sermons. But there's a saying that says, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if we win them with just this, this self-focused gospel, which is true. All those things that I mentioned before are very true. But if that's the extent... We haven't really included the whole thing. And I like Bob Shoburn. He's a, a missions mobilizer. And when he teaches in churches, he, he talks about cat and dog theology. That's great. Cat and dog theology. And it goes something like this. You pet me. You feed me. You shelter me. You love me. Dog says... You must be God. You shelter me. 
You feed me. You care for me. You love me. Cat says, I must be God. Cat says, God wants to bless me. Dog says, I want to bless God. Cat says, God serves me. Dog says, I serve God. Cat, God advances my kingdom. Dog, I advance God's kingdom. Cat, God bless America. Dog, America bless God. Cat, God is a means to an end. Dog, God is the end. So cat may be a believer, but a dog is more of a disciple. And I think in fairness, all of us have a mixture of cat and dog in our individual lives. But what? This is a three points in a poem sermon. So you, a 1940s preaching professor would be very proud of me today. But uh, the first point is what? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to be not only a believer, but also a disciple? So we zoomed in on the me, and we're going to pull it back a little bit. James writes and says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Jesus, remember, this is the part that's in red in your Bibles. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And again, from Jesus, John 14, very truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And then the classic section on works, Ephesians 2. It finishes with this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Good works are part of the normal Christian life. The whole context of Ephesians 2, most of you memorized the earlier part of that. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. Not by works. But we see at the end that we were saved for good works. And that is the key. That works do not save us. We are not saved by good works. They have nothing to do with earning our salvation. But what we do know is though we are not saved by works, we are saved for good works. And it's part of the Christian experience and the Christian life. Which brings us to the second point of why. Why the good works? Well, because God is busy and active. Pastor Jeremy did a sermon on this topic recently. uh, This particular topic. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. There we go. Remember the kingdom now and not yet. This is a synopsis of that theological idea from the Gospel Project. It says, the church and the kingdom of God are closely related, though not identical. And when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it is referring to the reign of God in the world. And this kingdom is one that can never be destroyed, will never end, and its King Jesus will sit on the throne forever. That's when we look forward to. The church is the people of God who live under Jesus' loving rule now. And while waiting for the realization, the full realization of God's kingdom in the future, as the church, we are called to be witnesses to his kingdom, proclaiming God's message of salvation through Christ and demonstrating the power of the gospel through good works so that others may be brought to live under God's reign. 
And then we study the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we teach that book. If we do a sermon series, we're going to teach it in a Sunday school class, small group. We're going to teach it strategically because it lends itself to being taught strategically. Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Edomus, and how that all works out within the, the time frame of the, of the whole book of Acts. Well, it looks very strategic because in hindsight, everything is much clearer. And we've got that satellite view. But if we zoom in at the street level and we look at each of those particular events that from the satellite view are very critical to the movement of God and and what he's doing uh, for the kingdom and the kingdom spread, when we get to the street level, none of those guys knew at the time that that was what was going on. All that we see at the street level is Christians who are being faithful. They're just living their lives faithfully. And then we know from the satellite view, the impact that that has. But in the street view, it seems to have an impact, but it's just something that, that's very kind of local. But we, kind of, we get the flavor that all this is intended to be happening as just Christians live their lives faithfully. From church history, we see the same kind of thing. If we were to take a satellite view, we could see if we saw growth charts that there were certain blips that things happened and the church grew. Well, several of those things are average Christians being average Christians. And those things all coming together made significant things happen. One of the ones that I think is very significant is a time of plague. Plagues were horrible. During the Black Plague, if you go from Europe to India, in three years' time, one-third of the population died. Can you imagine? And it was a brutal, brutal death. It, it, it just horrible. And so when the plague came to your city, what, what would you do? Most people left. They're out. They wanted to get as far away from that as possible. They didn't want to have it happen to their families, and they were just gone, except Christians. A lot of Christians remained behind, and they cared for those that were sick. And not everybody died. Some Christians died in caring for those that they helped, but not everybody that had the plague and was cared for by the Christians died. And guess what? They remembered and they were impacted by that so powerfully that they became believers and the church grew and took root from the faithful living of Christians. The same thing happened. What happened early on? Christianity is a Jewish sect. It's just a handful of people who are even kind of ostracized anyway. And we have this handful of people where three centuries later, it started to become the law or the religion of the land in a lot of places. Well, it was faithful Christians living, reaching their neighbors, becoming into court and being servants, and by their influence and by their lives and by their honesty and by their love and all these things that they demonstrated, people were won over. And as kings 
and, and leaders became convinced they were won over. It became the religion of the land. People living faithful. So from these examples from church history, as well as from the Bible, this is our truth. The kingdom grows by the everyday actions of faithful believers. The kingdom grows by the everyday actions of faithful believers. And that's the primary way that it grows. Paul's writing, he says, one prepares the soil. Another faithful believer plants the seed. Another faithful believer fertilizes. Another faithful believer cares for the plant. Another one harvests. It's just a variety of believers being faithful and doing doing their thing, and it grows. From Ephesians 4, my seminary degree is Master's of Religious Education. We spend a lot of times in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. If you ever want to know the answer to something, it's probably in Ephesians 4. So (laughs) uh, now preachers won't say that, but religious education majors will tell you that. From him, the whole body, the whole body is held together and joined together by every supporting ligament. Isn't that great? We read about arms and legs and hands, you know, the parts of the body. And look what this says. It's not those big parts that have, you know, big fancy functions. What is the most important part? The supporting ligaments. That's powerful. That's powerful. Even Romans 12 said it's the weaker parts of the body that are the most, that are essential. There's not much that's essential, but it says the weaker parts of the body are essential. So every supporting ligament, all these different parts are held and joined together. And the body grows and builds itself up in love as all the pastors do their work. This is Pastor Appreciation. Thank you. We're grateful that the body builds itself in love as you do your work. That's awesome. That's not it. Because Ephesians 4 says earlier on that he gives us pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. That's their responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful in doing our Good works as each part does its work is how the body builds. So that's the why the body and the kingdom. They all grow. This is the third point. The how. How does each part do its work? Love this. It's from Psalm. You can just picture David writing this because he's reflecting on who he is and who God is. And he, he just is flooded with some really powerful thoughts. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. I love that he says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Because we just picture, you know, if I think something's good, they just kind of plop it down. They just kind of, okay, there it is. And. It just kind of comes and it just exists and and just look at it and say, isn't that great? But he's reflecting so much. He says, you know what? As I look at myself, I'm complex. And it's not just the outer that you see, all this stuff going on inside. My emotions, my intellect, my passions, all these things that are inside. God, you knit me together. Knitting takes time. Knitting takes some thought. I have knitters around me. 
Certain of the women around my home knit, and one especially. She's always looking back, and you know, where, because she's thinking, she's processing what's going on, making sure it's all being done right. And David, as he thinks about it, says, I was knit together by God. That's powerful. That's powerful. Knit together. Hebrew words in this, fearfully and wonderfully. Fearfully doesn't imply that others should be afraid of us. Instead, the Hebrew word, which is yar, which is the first one, the Hebrew word, it means to be crafted with great respect, honor, and reverence. And the Hebrew word for wonderfully is palah. And this means that we have been created in a distinct, marvelous way that is distinguished and set apart from others. So not only did God in the process of creating us do it with careful intention, he also did so in a way that would cause us to be set apart from others. You are a unique piece of craftsmanship. And God knit you together in a special way. This is a shape. Uh, this is from uh, Rick Warren's ministry. Uh, Eric Reese is the author of this particular book. And he heads that ministry at Saddleback Church. Rick Warren wrote the New York Times bestseller, uh, Purpose Driven Life. And part of that, within that book, is where shape comes from. Shape is just a great way of understanding who I am. The better that I can understand who I am, the better that I can help figure out what it is that I should be doing. What are the things that God has crafted me for? I don't know. Maybe I should take a shape class and figure it out. Maybe there's some answers in that. This class used to be taught here. Pastor Dave Hotop, that was his thing. He loved teaching that class, mobilizing people. I talked with, with um, Pastor Gibb, and we're going to revitalize shape. We're going to bring it back. And after the first of the year, one of the things that we're going to offer is a shape class. We're also going to make it available to small churches if they would choose to use that. And hopefully we're going to be offering this on a regular basis because it helps to, helps to look at you from a more comprehensive way. Shape stands for, it's an acrostic, it stands for spiritual gifts. Bible tells that each of us has been given at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. Heart, which I like to describe as passion. If you can figure out what it is that you're passionate about and, and what, what that piece is, then to me, you're way down the road of how God wants to use you because he gave you that for a reason. God's heart is God cares about a lot of things. No way could I care about all the things that God cares about. But guess what? For you and you, and I can just point all around the room, and for myself, God gives pieces of his heart to each one of us. And there are certain things that we are passionate about. And that's the piece of the heart that God has given us. Abilities, ways that you have been trained, you have certain abilities. Personality is key. I've been to Japan. I know that I could never be a missionary in Japan. My personality does not lend itself to being a missionary in Japan. I, would, I do not do well in those shame-based cultures. I'm just too blunt. I mean, if I spent an evening with a Japanese family, they would just walk out of their shell shock. What did we run into? You know, this personality. But there are other things 
that I am gifted for. You know, I, I have no problem coming up and talking with people and, and uh, interacting in different settings and groups. It's my personality. And experiences. This one's key. Because guess what? It isn't necessarily your most positive experiences that make you the most useful to God. We hold this treasure in jars of clay. God does some of his best work through brokenness and through weakness. Gave Paul a thorn in the flesh that his greatness might be shown through his weakness. God shines through Paul's weakness. There are people who have survived divorce. There are people who have survived terrible crimes that have happened to them. There are people that have survived extreme poverty. There are people who have survived, and we could just go down the list. I love when I went to the 2020 um, Open Door Banquet. They had 19, 20 different easels up, and each one had a big placard on it that told the story of someone whose life they had given up, and it was pretty much over. And they thought, I am worthless. And they found hope and purpose and fulfillment and life in Christ and were transformed. So our experiences are significant. Well, because you're uniquely you and wonderfully made for service, I want to talk about three out of a million different ways that God can use your shape to increase his reign in your part of the world. First is as a relative, either as a parent, an aunt, uncle, grandparent, even a child. The Bible tells us, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. This wonderful section, Paul writing to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those. What does it mean you know those? Because you know from their example. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. We learned earlier in that book that it was Eunice and Lois that he learned those from. His mother and his grandmother. Grandparents, you can have a tremendous impact. Uh, I just am so appreciative of some of the grandparents I know here. They intentionally seek out their grandchildren, have their grandchildren come and stay with them as often as they can, but shoot for like a week, a year, just to come and be with them. And then they can pour into their lives. I mean, that's just powerful. And even a child, I grew up in a non-Christian home. I became a follower of Christ in high school. And because of the change in my life, and my example in the home, my father became a believer and we were baptized together. You're sitting there going, why in the world would he get so emotional about that? The thing is, he didn't know at the time he had a brain tumor. Would be dead three years later. I just praise God for that gift of grace. It's just so powerful. And I just appreciate that so much in my life from him. 
Next is as a co-worker, either as a boss or as an employee. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do and do it not only with their eye on you when they're looking at you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. For whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance or reward from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Why? So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. What you do reflects on God. That's why it's important that we live the lives that God calls us to as godly agents of reconciliation. As a neighbor, my mom was recently widowed for the third time. And she moved to South Dakota, uh, not too far from my brother. And here she is in her home by herself. And a couple houses away are an eight and nine-year-old sisters. And she's befriended them and they befriended her. And they come home from school and one of the first places they want to go several times a week is to go over and visit my mom because she has cookies. And they stay there for hours. They just hang out with my mom, which is crazy. Why do they want to do that? Who knows? But there's something about being that attraction and being that witness, being faithful where you are. Second way as a neighbor is as a church. Guess what? We spend over $2 million a year on local outreach because that's the budget of this church. This church is an outreach to our community by its presence and by the people that are here and by the ministries that take place within it, the things that happen. It has a reputation. So this church is local outreach. And finally, local nonprofits and foundations. As former missions pastor, I was always grateful because I got to know the people that are working in the, the local ministries. And they always told me, we are so grateful. And they would go down the list of names because these people are some of our best board members. Because we needed accounting and we didn't know where we were going to find somebody. And we, you have a faithful accountant in your church. And they came and they're doing our books for us. And you wouldn't believe the difference that that makes for us. Or the people that serve on the front lines of these ministries. Walking in and seeing the Midland E free people standing behind the counter doing the serving at open door for the lunches. Or the people that, that help in the, in the different projects through like uh, Home to Stay would be another good example. Or the ones that come alongside the individual clients through the, the pregnancy uh, resource services. Old names, I know. They all constantly change their name. Uh, that they were CPR before that, the crisis pregnancy resource. Uh, but anyway, the individuals that befriend and become the, the, the person that walks them through their process. People being faithful in serving in those ministries out in the community. I think it's great. So those are our three points. We come to the point of our conclusion. It's time for us to begin our descent as we look forward to landing this plane. So I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... This is the big way of connecting the dot. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. 
all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God's reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, what that means is, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We are God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors. To the world. Imagine two billion Christians, two billion Christians living out their calling. Remember, it's the faithful living of individual Christians that grows the kingdom. Imagine two billion Christians living out their calling. Jesus had a bunch of people that started following him, he began his ministry, he got a bunch of people hanging around, and they're all just kind of there. And they think, man, this Jesus is pretty cool. There's some really neat things that are happening. And he stops. He says, okay, all you guys that are following me, I want to tell you something. Just stop and listen. And we have the Sermon on the Mount. But what that really is, is this an orientation seminar. He said, you're following me, but I want you to know what you're following and why you're following. Don't follow just me. This is what the kingdom is about. This is our work. These are our purposes. This is what's to be expected of you. And he gives his whole orientation to the kingdom. You want to work for me? You want to be part of this? Here's what it's about. And he starts with the Beatitudes. Remember, two billion Christians. Think if they lived out the Beatitudes. They're to have humility, meekness, empathy, a willingness to sacrifice for others, a hunger for God and right living, mercy, purity of heart, being peacemakers, not agitators, peacemakers, and a willingness to endure suffering. And add to that the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, you were part of this other kingdom. We had the fruits of the flesh, and now you have the Spirit. This is how your life is to be more and more characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, two billion people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. You and I as disciples are to be living that calling. Where we live, it is challenging. It's a very challenging environment. Do you know the fastest growing religion in America? Just think for a second. I'm not going to have you shout it out. The fastest growing religion in America and has been for decades. Little checkbox. None. None. Within a generation... We're going to look a whole lot like secular Europe. Very sad what's going on in our country as we, as we look at, at those things. It's exciting what's going on with individual Christians and with some individual churches. But we need to be faithful in this difficult environment where God has planted us and where we are. In an increasingly secular world, you are the only Bible that some people will read and you are the only Jesus that some people will see. Remember I said three points in a poem? I remember this poem that I read years ago, and it's just always stuck with me. I just love every so often pulling it out and reading it. It's not great poetry, but its message, I think, is really, really cool. You are the only Jesus that a lot of people will 
see. You're the only Bible that a lot of people will read. It's from Edgar Guest, who is a good preacher's poet. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. For the eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but an example is always clear. And the best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see a good put in action is what everybody needs. And I can certainly learn how to do it if you will let me see it done. And I can watch your hand in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures that you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you in the high advice that you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and live. One good man teaches many. Men believe what they behold. One deed of kindness noted is worth 40 that are told. And who stands with men of honor learns to hold his honor dear. For right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I love that line. For right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. If you ask people that you work with, what is a Christian? They're not going to go through four spiritual laws or the bridge or any of that. They're going to talk about what a Christian does. Christian loves. Christian has joy. Christian. That's the Christians that that's the examples that God wants to be used. In a lost, broken, cynical world, you are God's ambassador. He has commissioned you. You are God's ambassador, his agent working for and with him to reconcile your corner of the world to him. And for those who come in contact with you, you are the Jesus that people see, experience, and know. And let your light shine before men. In other words, be your transformed self and serve others. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. That's how it's supposed to work. We put our light out there. Others see it. They don't praise you. They praise God. That's connecting all the dots. It's come together. We open the sermon with a simple prayer. I want to close the sermon with a simple prayer. Isaiah wrote, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Our prayer is a little different because we are followers of Christ. We have already been sent. We don't ask to ask God to send us. He has already sent us. He said, go and make disciples and be witnesses. We've already been sent. So our prayer is a little bit different. We have to be, uh, we need to be faithful in working alongside God to redeem and reconcile our places in the world. So this week, and hopefully, just like that seminary professor's prayer has stuck with me all these years, hopefully not just this week, but possibly for the rest of life. This might be your prayer. And here am I, Lord, use me. Throughout the week, wherever you're standing, just think that. Here am I, Lord, in this place of work. Here am I, Lord, in this family. Here am I, Lord, in this neighborhood. 
use me. Will you please stand? I want to practice that one time with you. I'm just going to go like this and have you repeat that prayer. Whatever you see this, just repeat that prayer. Here am I, Lord. Use me. Here am I, Lord. Use me. I was lost and alienated from God, but now I am saved by Christ's sacrifice. Here am I, Lord. Use me. And I have been given spiritual gifts. And I am marvelously and uniquely crafted to serve God. Here am I, Lord, use me. And I am Jesus to my family, to my co-workers, and to my community. Here am I, Lord, use me. And again, here am I, Lord, use me. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Remain standing.